Can you turn to the person next to you and say, the harvest is plentiful? Thank you. Now respond back. The workers are few. Thank you, Josh, for sharing, uh, for sharing with us. Uh, we're studying the book of Ecuador, and uh, the, gift, uh, the gift of the book of Ecuador... <laughs> Start over. Okay. We're studying the book of Esther. It's a gift to us, and its gift is in that the world in which Esther lived, Persia around 483 to 473 BC, uh, is very similar to the world in which we live today. It's a crazy world uh, that fights against a life of faith within us, that uh, is challenging. Uh, we're not, it's not a, it's not, it wasn't a Christian or a God-fearing, a faith-in-God kind of a nation, uh, much like the world we live in today is not also. Um, the the thing that we've been looking at is what, what does it mean then for us to live as God's people, as God's minority, as a minority witness in the midst of this kind of a world that's kind of crazy, it's kind of wild, that fights against the life of God, the life of faith within us. The uh, first week, a couple weeks back, what we saw was we, we looked at kind of a, a broad sketch uh, the life of King Xerxes. We saw what kind of king he is, start out as a pretty good guy, seems really generous, seems like he's going to be good for the people, but then we quickly began to realize that he's this bloodthirsty, crazy, impulsive, get rid of your wife in a single day kind of a king, and all of a sudden we're realizing maybe uh, the kings of this world who promise so much can't really deliver on their promises. The first thing we saw is that living for God in this kind of a world requires that we give our allegiance not to the kings of this earth, but to a greater king, King Jesus. Last week, we saw what it was like to be a citizen of the kingdom of, of the Persian Empire and to hear the lies that were being told. There were lies about people and there were lies about the heroes of the day. The first thing we saw to live for God in the midst of this kind of a world is we need to love people, even the ones that the world doesn't value. The world likes to use people instead of loving people, and the call of God is to see that every person, right, no matter how broken, how messed up, how discarded they might seem to the world, they're made in the image of God and loved by God. And so the call of God was for us to love the people who the world doesn't love and then to realize that the heroes of our day, people like Mordecai and Esther in Scripture, uh, are at best, okay, the best of men are at best mere Men, they will fail us, they will fall, they will disappoint us. We're all weak and wounded, and yet God can use people like us. As we continue in chapter 3, we're asking this question, how then do we live for God in this world? And the hope and prayer is that throughout the book of Esther, as we look through this book, that we're going to answer that question, how do we live in the midst of a world that's gone crazy, where uh, Christians seem to uh, be confused about how to live? There's a, I mean, there's several options. We saw this, we've seen this in Esther and Mordecai. There are some who, as, as this world seems to get weirder and weirder and uh, less and less uh, to look like us and the people of God, one of our options is let's just withdraw from the world. Okay. Let's just get amongst our people. Okay? Just get our people together and let's separate, let's isolate ourselves, let's do our own thing, and let's just get strong in order that we can uh, 
uh, stand firm amidst all the attacks that are going to come in the future. Let's just withdraw from this world. That's how some people chose to do it. There are others who say, hey, you know what? Um, maybe we can just try to blend in. Don't stand out. We can pretend like we're Persians. We don't have to talk about our faith in God. We don't have to talk about our Jewish identity. We can just kind of go with the flow. No harm, no foul. We're not going to stand out. We're not going to get beaten down. We can just kind of uh, roll with it. And that's kind of what Esther and Mordecai did. Some might choose to withdraw, isolate. Others might choose to try and blend in. Others might stand up and protest and, and shake their fist, uh, which may seem like the right thing to do. But how do you do that without dishonoring the name of Christ and without getting yourself killed while doing so? How do we live in this world? These are the questions that we're asking. And it's going to get even more and more important because the plot's about to thicken pretty considerably as we get into chapter 3 and chapter 4 and on. Uh, we're going to start in Esther chapter 2, verse 19. Uh, we're going to finish up in chapter 2, and then we're going to read all of chapter 3. And as we read this, I want you to really imagine and envision. Try and think about what's going on, because what I'm going to do as, I, uh, as we go through this, um, this passage, I'm going to read all of it in its entirety, and I think a lot of work needs to be done in order to bring us into the context of it. And so basically, I'm going to re-walk us through the text as my sermon, and then at the end, I'm going to give a couple points of application. So this is the word of God for the people of God, Esther chapter 2, verse 19. It says, when the virgins, okay, this is the women who were brought in, trafficked in order to find a new queen. When they were brought together, were assembled a second time, Mordecai, okay, he is the cousin of the queen, okay, the, who adopted her. Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther, she's the queen, the Jewish orphan adopted as, uh, by Mordecai, made queen, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. Verse 21, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. Now, when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on a gallows. All this was recorded in, in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. So after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. The royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why, why do you disobey king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them finally he was a Jew. <clears throat> When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, of Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, in the month of Nisan, they cast the poor, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman. It's kind of like a dice, die that was cast, uh, to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom 
whose customs are different from those of all other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It's not the king's best interest to tolerate them, so if it pleases a king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. I'll put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, royal secretaries were summoned, wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women, and little children on a single day, 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was, made, uh, was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready. For that day, spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued at, in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. This is God's word. Oh my goodness. This is insane. So what do we see here? We, we see that the people of God are under attack, and there is a threat of genocide in the Persian Empire. One of the things that we need to understand is that from the beginning of time, okay, there has been a conflict. You might say it's a cosmic spiritual conflict that has been happening in the world from the creation of the world. Okay? Adam and Eve, right, made in the image of God as people who walked with God, attacked by the serpent, Satan and the lies that he was propagating against the people of God. And from that time, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, God proclaimed a judgment. And this is what he said. In uh, one day, Genesis 3.15, there's going to be a battle between the seed of the woman, which is all who have faith in, in, the, in, in God and in the Messiah to come, and the seed of the serpent, okay, all who are opposed to the life of faith, life of faith in God. There's going to be two concurrent tracks running throughout human history, and you see that today. There's a people of God and all who are against him. There's a people of God and all who are against him. And the promise in Genesis 3.15 is that one day a seed of the woman is going to come who's going to destroy the seed of the serpent. And victory is going to come. That seed of the woman is Jesus. But until that time and since that time, this cosmic conflict continues and rages on until the time when Jesus comes to make all things new and right. It begins and it continues with the next generation, Cain and Abel. Cain, the seed of the serpent, kills Abel, the seed of the woman. And throughout human history, there are these two tracks of people. They're the people of God and those who are seeking to destroy them. And Esther's uh, chapter 3 is yet another chapter in that ongoing saga of how God's people in a crazy world are seeking to be exterminated by an enemy. Two things I just want to bring out about the nature of the enemy. First, about the nature of the enemy, and then second, about how he works. The first thing is this. Our enemy, okay, our enemy wants to thwart God's purposes, God's people, and God's promises. Okay, here we have an enemy, and there's always been this cosmic enemy, Satan, the devil, 
whose desire is to thwart God's purposes, his promises, his people. You put those in any, any order. What do we see here? Chapter 2, verse 19 starts out with Mordecai hanging out at the king's gate. Okay, what the king's gate, more than just a gate, it was a massive entryway, hallway into uh, the palace of the king. This is kind of where the political folks, people who had political aspirations would hang out. So uh, all the king's nobles and, and officials and, and folks like that. And so Mordecai, we see, is part of the Persian Empire. He's hook, line, and sinker, part of it, and he's got these political dreams and political aspirations of becoming someone big in the kingdom of Persia. So here's Mordecai. He's hanging out in that place where the politicians hang out. And as he's hanging out on this particular day, he hears these two people talking. Okay, who are these people? It says, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thana and Teresh. Okay. Big Thana and Teresh. These are two of the king's chief officials. They were the ones who guarded the doorway to make sure that only the right people could come into the king's palace. Okay, these were trusted, they were the secret servicemen of the Persian Empire. These were the right hand, the bodyguards of King Xerxes. And as Mordecai is hanging out, soaking in the political gossip, he hears these two. For some reason, they're angry. And there are some who believe, uh, some who are, are, are very certain that Biggie and Thrash were two of the eunuchs who were made eunuchs by Xerxes. You can imagine then why they would be angry. But for whatever reason, it says that they became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. This is huge. A, an assassination plot on the most powerful man, the king considered a god in the Persian Empire. And so Mordecai hears this, he's like, oh my goodness, I need to report this in order, maybe I can, maybe this is, this is going to be a huge notch on my political belt here. So he tells Esther, oh my gosh, I heard Biggie and Thrash are trying to kill King Xerxes. You got to do something about it. Make sure that you tell him I told you. And so Esther tells the king, they do their research, and this is headline news. I mean, everybody knows an assassination plot against the king of their known world. Right? This is major news that there has been an act of treason against that king. And so once it gets researched, once it gets discovered, they find out it's true. These two guys wanted to kill Xerxes, and so what do they do as their punishment? They get hung on a gallows in order that everyone in the empire would see that if you try to take the life of the king, this becomes your future. And so this is a good day for Mordecai. He just found uh, out this huge plot that could get him a pot of gold because something that was very clear to those people in the Persian Empire is that acts of honor and chivalry, particularly as it relates to the king and his benefit, would be rewarded immediately and generously. Okay. So Haman, I'm sorry, so Mordecai says, Esther, here, here's a deal. Esther tells him, and it says at the end of chapter 2, all this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. This goes down in the official records of Persian history. So here you've got Mordecai. He's thinking, how will I be honored here? Maybe I'll get the Persian Medal of Honor. Maybe I'll get a large sum of Persian money. Whatever it is this, is, this is huge. A good day is about to come to Mordecai. And so we come to chapter 3. And chapter 3 begins with this buzz about the kingdom, that there's going to be an announcement 
an honoring of an official. Because apparently what's happened is that Xerxes, knowing that his life was almost in danger from two of his closest men, he needs another set of eyes. He needs another set of hands and feet, another set of ears around him. Someone with the authority of the king and able to enact the things that the king would enact without Xerxes actually needing to be there. A vizier, as it was. And so... The buzz around Persia is kind of the buzz around the, the app when Apple is coming out with a new product. Everyone starts talking about it. What's it going to be? What's it going to look like? Uh, do you have a picture of it? And, and there's all these leaks. And so the word is getting around, at least in Mordecai's mind, oh, my gosh, this is my day. And so in chapter 3, it begins. After these events, King Xerxes honored, Xerxes honored, <laughs> Mordecai's about to pat himself on the back because he's going to get his due. And then screech, plot twist, honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. What in the world is going on here? All of a sudden, Mordecai is mortified. Because it's not him, it's somebody else. As soon as people begin to realize, hey, you know what? Haman has been elevated to the status of king, the right hand of the king, even given his signet ring so that whatever Haman decrees and signed with the signet ring of the king becomes law. His word is as good as the king's word. And so as soon as people begin to realize, and then Xerxes issues a decree, you've got to bow down and honor him, everyone starts bowing down. So everybody starts bowing down and paying their respects to Haman. Everyone except for one. Throughout the entire empire, you see this wave of people bowing down, bowing down, bowing down, but then there's this one single solitary figure named Mordecai who does not. And the question is, why not? Why doesn't Mordecai bow down to Haman? Well, if it was me, okay, and all things considered, and I was Mordecai and I should have been honored, I'd be pretty salty that somebody else got the position that I wanted. The honor, the status, the power, I'd be pretty upset about that. But that's not why Mordecai did not bow down. The reason it says in verse 4, all these people are asking him, hey man, why aren't you bowing down to Haman? Day after day they asked him, and it says at the end of verse 4, it says he told them he was a Jew. The only reason he gives for why he won't bow down to Haman is, I'm a Jew. So some people say, well, this is his moment of crisis. Finally, for the first time, he's actually living out his identity as a child of God. He's no longer hiding his faith, but that's not what this is. He's not refusing to bow down to Haman on religious grounds because I worship my God, the one true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's not what he's doing here. Because to bow down to Haman in this situation was not an act of worship. It was an act of respect for the position, respect for the title, kind of like you would salute a military person had they been walking by. If you're in the military, a higher-ranking officer, you salute them. That's what this is akin to. It's not worship here. So what is it about Haman that causes Mordecai to be so angry that he will not give him respect? I'll tell you what, if you're a Jew and you're reading the book of Esther, especially in that time, it is crystal clear to you why he doesn't bow down. Can I tell you why? Because when a character in Jewish literature, in Hebrew literature, is introduced, the way that he or she is introduced is the most significant thing about them, at least for this 
author's purposes. So check out what it says in chapter 2, verse 5. Now, there was, a, in, uh, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shibi, the son of Kish. Two things really important. Mordecai, from the tribe of Benjamin, a descendant of Kish. Okay, here's what you have to understand. There was another descendant from the line of Benjamin, who was the literal son of Kish. His name was King Saul, okay, first king of Israel. So what you have here is that Mordecai is a descendant of King Saul. Okay, understand that, huge. Then what do you see when you see in chapter 3, verse 1, Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Okay? Twice when it describes Haman, it says this in, in verse 1, and then it says it again in verse 10. Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Understand this. Who is Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite? Agag was the king of a people called the Amalekites, the ancient enemies of Israel. When Israel first became a nation, okay, they left Egypt, they got the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. The first group to attack them were a group called the Amalekites. The Amalekites didn't just attack them in a regular war, they blindsided them. Coming from behind the people of Israel, they attacked them. You know, in a, in a, a group of people traveling, the weaker ones are at the back. The elderly, the slow, the weak, the women, the children. So the Amalekites, the first group of people to attack God's people in, as, as a nation, they attacked them from behind. They, basically what they're saying, the Amalekites are ruthless. They have no moral sensibilities within them. They're ruthless people. And from that time on for the next thousand years, the Amalekites would be a thorn in the side of the Israelites. Well, in 1 Samuel 15... King Saul is leading Israel in a war against these same Amalekites led by King Agag. And this is what God says through the prophet Samuel. He says, Saul, okay, check it. You're going to fight the Amalekites, but you need to, you're not only going to beat them, but you need to destroy them completely. Okay? The Old Testament, you hear that language a lot, and I'll tell you why. Three reasons why men of God, women of God in the Old Testament, Israel fell all the time, lost their faith. Number one, because they didn't listen to their older, wiser mentor leaders. Okay, that's the first reason they fell. The second reason is because they got in compromising relationships with the opposite gender. Okay, this is a word to the wise here for all of us. But the third reason, third reason why men and women of God fell in the Old Testament was because they were led astray by the gods of other nations. And here's what God is saying. He's saying, Saul, listen, if you don't completely destroy the Amalekites, they're going to continue to lead you astray. Their gods are going to become the gods that y'all end up worship. Your people are going to get compromised. And here's what Saul does. He overtakes the Amalekites, but he says, there are some sheep and cattle that are pretty good. We're going to keep them. And hey, just for, for fun, I'm going to keep King Agag of the Amalekites alive. And so the line of Agag and the Amalekites would be propagated. And now 500 years after Saul's disobedience to God, a descendant of Agag is now trying to destroy the people of God. So you understand the racial, spiritual tension when it says, I am Mordecai, a Jew. Haman the Agagite is the one who is honored in my stead. This is a cosmic twist of fate. And so you see, this is the reason why he doesn't bow down. 
because the Amalekites, the Agagites, are ruthless people. They were back then, and you see it again here. And so Haman is furious. He says, it's not enough for me to kill the one man who's standing. Everyone else is standing, but the other, not just him, his entire people, genocide, wiped out, exterminated, so that there are no more Jews on the face of the earth. Do you see what's happening here? It's not just an attack against Haman, I'm sorry, Mordecai, not just an attack against a certain group of people, but throughout the history of the world, there has been a demonic attack against the purposes of God, the promises of God, and the people of God. If the Jews are wiped out, then the promise of God given to Abraham that you'll be a blessing to all nations, the promise to Eve in Genesis 3.15 that a Savior is going to come to save and to rule the world would no longer be possible if the Jews are exterminated. Do you see what's at stake here? Do you see what's happening here? There is a cosmic conflict, a spiritual battle that has been going on throughout time and the fact that you and I are living here in the year 2019, where we are, we find ourselves smack in the middle of another and the same conflict where the values of the world are fighting for the life of Christ within you and within me. And in every period of history, there have been people trying to wipe out the, the people of God. It's the Amalekites, it's the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Termites, all these different kinds of people trying to wipe out God's people. After that, it was Assyria, Babylon, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Holocaust, whatever the case might be, and if you declare yourself a child of God, then you have entered into a spiritual battle. And Jesus says in John 10.10, this is the nature of your enemy. He seeks to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And every time you see stealing, killing, destroying going on, you can probably presume that there's a work of the enemy going on behind all of these things because our battle is not against flesh and blood. Whenever... Whenever I hear of something within the church, oh, there's gossip within the church. Oh, you know, these people don't like each other. Oh, these people are, are angry at each other. Oh, this person is fighting with this person, especially if it's within the church. Then the spiritual radar ought to go up and say, this is more than just flesh and blood. And we have to understand that the weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the world. Well, I'm just going to get back at them. Or I'm going to go on YouTube and find out negotiation techniques to be able to assuage this relationship. No, this battle is not simply against flesh and blood. For all of these different kingdoms that try, massive empires that tried to wipe out the people of God to this day, right? Get, go, the Roman Empire, th uh, 30, BC, 30 AD until 325 AD. 11 people, 11 people who claimed the name of Jesus, an empire that was trying to wipe them out, but the Roman Empire is done and over with, and the people of God multiplied to take over and become the dominant religion. It happened by 300 AD, but it is even more true now than it ever was. And more people confessing the name of our God than the God of any other religion. But you and I are entered into a spiritual battle because you and I have an enemy who wants to thwart you, the purposes of God, and his promises to get you to doubt. Do I really believe that all my life you have been so, so good? Do we believe that? Because there's an enemy who wants you to not believe that, to doubt the promises of God, to thwart God's promises. Because that's what's at stake within this world. The second thing I want to, want to show us is then how does this work? I'm going to get a little bit more uh, culturally into uh, the understanding of what's going on here. Second thing that we see is that our enemy, 
Um, and it, it says this in the bulletin, but I'm going to say it differently. Our enemy spreads lies, okay, spreads lies to idealize and then normalize that which is wrong. Here's what the enemy does. He spreads lies in order to idealize and then normalize that which is wrong. When you read this and you read about how Haman says, well, it angered him, right? It made him upset uh, to just wipe out. It, he scorned the idea of simply killing Mordecai. I want to wipe out his entire people. What is it? What is that? Obviously, it should bring to mind the Holocaust. How do things like the Holocaust happen? How an entire group of people are wiped out and so many people fail to rise up against what's going on. I want to help us to see, Mike Cosper writes about this whole process and kind of lean on what he says here. But understand this, when, when Haman sets his mind to exterminate the Jews of the Persian Empire. This is what he does. He goes to the king and he says, hey king, verse 8, there's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. So if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them and I'll put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. He leads with the statement about the Jews. He said, there's a group of people who are scattered amongst, but they don't listen to what you say. It's not really true, because for everything that we know so far in the book of Esther, the Jews have not risen up in opposition and rebellion to what the king has said. In fact, if there's anyone who's doing, everyone else seems to be going with the flow of the Persians. The only person amongst the Jews who doesn't is in this one case, (laughs) When Mordecai says, I'm not going to bow down to Haman. But he had other reasons for that, right? So Haman goes and he tells Xerxes, this is what you got to do. You know, when when two kids are fighting, they always want to be the first one to talk to mom or dad first because they can tell their side of the story so that you can get in mom and dad's brain. Because once the second person comes, they can say, no, 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 that's not the way it was. So here's Haman. He comes and says, hey, king, 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 there's a group of people, and he tells these lies about them, but Xerxes doesn't listen to anybody else's opinion. He just says, okay, because why? He's paranoid because there was an attack against his life just a few days earlier. And so in that paranoia, he says, all right, whatever you want, go ahead, kill them, because it starts with a lie. After the lie, what ends up happening, Haman says, hey, If we get rid of them, if we get rid of them, let me give you, here's what's going to happen. And this is the idealizing of the picture. Remember all that money you lost in your war against Greece? Yeah, yeah. Once these Jews are killed, we're going to plunder them, and all that money is going to go back into your royal treasury. Twofold. We're going to wipe out the cancer within, and then we're going to replenish the treasury so that it's better than, and not only that, there will be peace, unity, prosperity, and everyone will bow to you within the kingdom of Persia. And all of a sudden, that idealism says, okay, that sounds great. And when that ideal fantasy becomes planted in the minds of people, then whatever evil is needed to accomplish that becomes justified in the minds of people who long for that ideal. 
Are you following here? So let me tell you what this looks like in Nazi Germany. You've got a group of people, the Jews, that the Germans are saying, they're an inferior people. They're no good here. In fact, after our, our, morning, after our first service, uh, one of our sisters, Jane, was telling me that she took a social psychology class where she watched videos that were being propagated by the Third Reich, and they were showing that. In, they didn't have TVs then, so they would go to movie theaters, and they would show pictures of Jews, not good-looking Jews, but undesirable Jews, and then they would flash a picture of all these rats, right? Jews and all kinds of dirty things. So then the minds of people watching, they're thinking, these are the Jews. And then they would show Jews, and they would show buildings being destroyed. They would show Jews, and they would show the toppling down of, 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 of structures and all of these things to get people to think, yeah, you know what? Believing the lie that these people are not worthy of living. She said to this day, 20 years later, she still has images of that in her mind. So they're the lies. And then they say, if we get rid of these people, here's what can happen. We'll create a master race, and we will take over the world, and we will be the dominant world power. The lie led to an ideal. This is what we could be. This is what Germany could be. So what do we need to do? We need to kill the Jews. And then, and then, the execution of these innocent people became normalized in their day to the point where, yeah, there were some who stood up and said, this is not right. There were some who didn't say anything, but the majority of people were the ones who did nothing or even turned in their neighbors who were Jews. One of the poster children of Nazi, you know the name Hitler, but there was also a man named Adolf Eichmann. Is anyone familiar with that name, Eichmann? If you remember that song, we didn't start the fire, Hemingway, Eichmann, blah, 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 blah. So Eichmann was a major player. He was a major cog in that machine. He was the one charged with rounding up the Jews and sending them to the concentration camps. He was painted as a, he was a monster, evil, wicked, the incarnation of all that is evil in this world. And yet a, a woman named Hannah Arendt, she was doing a, she was, she was at the trial in, uh, I think it was, I forgot where the trial was, but she was there, and she observed Eichmann. She knew everything that she had heard about him, all the things that he had done, and as she sat at the trial, she said, he is nothing like what people say. He looks kind, almost dull, dim-witted was the word that she used. Not a monster in any stretch. He was your ordinary guy. He was, and, and other people's testimony said Adolf Eichmann was a law-abiding citizen. He was a good citizen. He was a good man. But somehow he became the major player in this killing machine to wipe out and exterminate the Jews during the Holocaust. Why? Because when an ideal, a lie becomes idealized, then the evil that is needed in order to attain that ideal becomes justified in the eyes of normal people, and it becomes normalized. This is scary. When we talk about spiritual war, guys, when you talk about spiritual battle, it's not little demons who pop up on your shoulder while you're praying who scare you. Right? That's not the spiritual war. That, is, that, that happens. That does happen. People who get these, you know, these weird thoughts and they start like, you know, th 
things like that do happen. But the major part of spiritual battle is in the principalities and the powers and the messages and the sermons and the teachings of the enemy that are being propagated through the airways, through movie, through media, through all of these different things. Can I tell you how? It, it, it's, what happened, it, it's what happens in 9-11 when the normalization of terrorism to a group of people who believe the lie that the Western world, that Americans are not worthy of living, that this ideal of an Islamic state enters into their mind that normalizes these things. It's, it, it's Stalin and, and, and communism and, and economic prosperity and economic equality that normalizes and justifies the actions of this group of people. And let me tell you how we're deceived by these lies and how the enemy is working in our world today. Our world has been told this lie about the nature of children after conception. We're told that it's not a child unless they're born, unless we see them. And the language of lies used by the pro-choice movement. And I'm, saying, I'm not trying to be political here, but God's word makes it clear that from conception we have value. In the womb of, the, of his mother, the prophet Jeremiah was called and set apart to be a prophet to the nations. That God knows us from the moment we're conceived and from even beyond that. But the language of the pro-choice movement is not a baby. It's not, it's not a person. It's not a human. It's a fetus. Right? It is a product of conception is what people say. Yeah, I don't mind discarding a product of conception or a fetus, but I do have issues. And this is what the average person is thinking. I do have problems getting rid of my baby, though. It's the language that's being used. It's not harvesting the organs of human remains. It's tissue donation for research. And so with these lies comes this idealized lifestyle that gets propagated to us. You can live in unbounded freedom as a woman. You don't, need to, you don't need to be tied down by a child. Go pursue your dreams. Go play in the WNBA. Go become the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Don't be shackled down. You can have all the freedom that you want. Don't be tied down by that little child who's not even a child in our eyes. And so abortion becomes not only idealized, but becomes normalized in our day. Do you see? The efforts to steal, kill, destroy. You see this throughout Scripture. Two times in Scripture where there was a mass execution of babies. Remember this. It was in Egypt when Moses' time was born, when a work of God was being raised up. Everyone was killed, all those baby boys except for Moses. The second time it happened in Scripture was when King Herod was jealous that the king of the Jews was born, an extermination attempt against all of the children so that Jesus, the king of the Jews, would be wiped out. It's happening again in our day since 1970s, abortion in our world. And it's so easy for us to just go with it because we don't understand all of the biblical teaching. Can I, can I press in a little bit and make us feel a little bit uncomfortable? Yeah, the LGBTQ community has been propagating their own agenda. I, I, th this morning, I read this, I read this quote from an author, a pro-LGBTQ author, who said, I am clearly, I'm clear on this, that my mission is to make this kind of a lifestyle natural, normal, and a healthy alternative, though I know that it's not really that way. 
But that's the agenda. And then we have this idealized sense. Just let everybody love who they want to love. You can't legislate somebody's love life. They want to love them, let them love them. But they fail to talk about what the Centers for Disease Control, the National Institutes of Health, talk about the harmful and exponentially dangerous risks of living in a same-sex kind of an attractive lifestyle. And so this becomes not only idealized, but the aim of the LGBTQ community is that this becomes normalized for our children and our grandchildren. Arthur, the PBS cartoon, four to eight years old, just had two men getting married on a TV show, a cartoon that's targeting four-year-olds to eight-year-old children. The indoctrination is beginning younger and younger. And if we don't realize it, if we don't see it, if we don't see it, then others will be speaking into the lives of our people before we do. And so here, I think, is, is the grace of God in all of this, okay? So this execution order has been set in motion, but when will this happen? This is the degree to which they're steeped in a spiritual world. Uh, Haman says, let's cast a lot, okay? Let's roll the dice and see when it will be, because in their minds, it would be unthinkable for them to ignore the roll of the dice, the poor, as it's called. So they cast the lots, and it, they're in the first month, but it, the lot shows up that in the 12th month, okay, in the 12th month, 11 months later is when the execution will begin to happen. And here we see God's grace in all of this, that over the next 11 months, Mordecai would then devise a plan which we'll see in chapter 4, that would set in motion this incredible set of events. And we'll see what happens in weeks to come. But what do we see then? I've just, basically, I've just walked us through the text. But what do we see? I want to just give two quick thoughts, points of application here. The first thing is this. If Esther had not been silent about her Jewish identity, then the execution order would not have gone forth had Xerxes known that his queen was at stake. There will come a point in time in all of our lives where the choice is either I'm going to rise and shine or I'm going to shrink back and hide. There is so much more at stake if you understand what's happening here. Some of you, that choice has been given to you on multiple occasions. If, you, if you're a follower of Christ and you haven't come up here and been, and, and, and been washed in the waters of baptism, okay, this is your time to do it. It's to say, hey, I'm going to stand for Christ in this world. If you haven't confirmed your faith, if you haven't come and, and shared the testimony, and I know some people are scared to do that, to get baptized, because they don't want to share their testimony. I understand that. But do that first step first and then see what happens afterwards. But some of us are afraid to do that. But the first thing that it looks like for us to live in the midst of a world gone crazy is for you to be bold about who you are. You don't have to go around and, and, and do all this like wild and crazy stuff, but for you to let people know, I follow a different king and I worship a different God. That's the first thing. The second thing that we see is that in another, about 100 years before this in Babylon, before Persia overtook the Babylonian Empire, in Babylon, God spoke to the same exilic group of people in the midst of Babylon through the prophet Jeremiah, and he said, for I know the plan. I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you hope in a future, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. 
And so in light of that, he says, I want you to stay where you are. I've planted you there so you blossom and you bloom there so that your fruit would be seen and tasted of by all those around you. In other words, he says, what God says literally is, Mary, take up homes, build your homes, and seek the welfare of the city to which God has called you to be. In other words, in the midst of a world in exile, live a life that's great for the purposes of God. Live in such a way that if they were to exterminate you from them, that they'd be shooting themselves in the foot. Live such excellent lives that if they were to get rid of you, then there would be an uproar and people would say, we cannot get rid of the Christians, not the, not the Christ seekers. That means be the best student that you can be where you are and shine for Christ where you are. Not just so that you can get into that school, but because God's honor is seen through you, because God's glory can be seen through you, so that you can shine the light of Christ, so that your school can be better because you are there. And in the same way, you do that at work. You work not as if working for my earthly boss whom I love or whom I hate, but you see your boss as Jesus Christ. God is my boss, as Paul writes, and you do the best that you can do to, to your customers that you serve, to the boss that you work for, for the clients that you are doing services for, for whomever it is, but let them see the awesome way with which you work, and they say, wow, you are valuable. You are a value adder, that our company is better because of you, that if you were to ever leave, our company would be so devastated by it. live such a good life for the glory of God amongst the place where you are that if they were to get rid of you, they would be hurting themselves. This is what, this is what it means to live in exile, to live in Persia, to be awesome at what you do in order that God might be seen, that a counterculture could be not only visible but propagated through the life that you live. See, in Persia, we've got these choices. We can assimilate and blend in become just like everybody else. We can withdraw and isolate and hang out only amongst ourselves. We can raise and shake a fist and complain, but we see something different here. We see something different because the seed of the promise would be continued and would be born 500 years later. And Jesus Christ, born into this crazy world, didn't withdraw, didn't assimilate, didn't blend in, didn't stand and shake his fist, but he entered into it and he sought the welfare of the place to which he was being sent. And at what cost, what price did he pay in order that the world to which he came could be a better place? He paid the ultimate price with the only life that he had in order that he might bring blessing to the world. See, we are recipients of that. So when we rise and shine for him and give to this world that's in need, we're not giving out of lack. We're giving because we've received the fullness of everything we need in Christ has been given to us. So out of the riches of his grace, we give to others. And we say, this is our world. This is our place in it. We may not be home. This may be exile, but we're going to live and we're going to shine for his glory in the places where we are. And as we do, may Christ be honored and may our lives find deep significance as we seek to follow him on the narrow road. Let's pray together. Yeah, as we pray, can we respond for uh, just one yeah, one moment as we commit our hearts to the Lord. Saying, Lord, how 
do you want me to live in light of what you've just spoken into my heart? What does it mean for me to live as a faithful man or woman of God in the midst of my school, in the midst of my workplace, in the midst of this community, in the midst of Baldwin Park? What does it mean for me to seek the welfare of Winter Garden, to seek the welfare of the people to whom you've called me in relationship? Let's pray for just uh, maybe a minute or so, asking the Lord that he would help us to live such beautiful lives that the beauty of Christ would be seen in us. Let's pray together for a minute like that. I'll pray for us, and then we'll conclude our worship service with our offering his tithes and with a song. heaven I pray thanking you that your word is relevant and it speaks into the human condition pray father that we would not be the kind of folks who would enter into your word as we enter into a spiritual buffet and pick a lot of the things that we like reject the things that we don't. Father, in this tension between the world in which we live and the word by which we've been saved, pray, Father, that you would challenge us to stand on your word and to know how to live faithfully to your word, winsomely, in order that others might see the goodness of God in us. Teach us in this world to rise selfless faith so that Jesus would be seen in us through us so that others might find a better king worth serving and worshiping and bowing to. Thank you so much. May we live out loud for you this week graciously, kindly, lovingly to reflect the beauty of Christ in us. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.